Hi, this is Against Everyone with Connor Beeb, episode 89. Brian O'Connor or Adorno and why not to feel bad about doing nothing. Uh, before I jump into talking about this episode, I want to put it out there uh, that you should sign up and support this show on Patreon. Uh, I say that at the beginning of all the shows. Uh, I would like to stop saying it, um, but I want to tell you why uh, the contribution is so important. So if you go to patreon.com forward slash Connor Beeb and support the show, uh, you'll be contributing to the unique dimensions of this show. So here's something that you may or may not know. I only record this show in person. Uh, as someone who has himself been on a gazillion podcasts, um, I can tell you the quality of conversation and the kinds of conversations that arise from talking into a device, whether it's a phone or a computer mic or whatever, is so different than sitting in the room and really connecting in person with another human being. It's one of the reasons why I think this show is substantially, um, substantively as well different uh, from a lot of other podcasts that are out there and I don't even do it in some big, expensive, cold, austere studio. I just do it in my home. It's just me with two microphones and uh, a lot of research that I've done and a person sitting across me that's willing to engage uh, in big ideas. So I want to say that that quality is something that I really want to keep doing. And as you may or may not know, also, I moved to Ireland earlier this year. Um, now the show is expanding to have a much more international audience and living in Ireland uh, access to an international roster of guests is becoming more and more available to me. And I want to just bump up uh, how much I make for this show a little bit so I have a small travel budget. That might sound really ambitious, but actually traveling around Europe is really cheap once you're here. It's cheaper than traveling between states in the U.S. And I've got a lot of people that have agreed to do the show, but that live in other countries, which I could get to really easily uh, with a small travel budget. Uh, it's not you know, some, I, I'm not <laughs> going to go on some like glorious work trip, uh, you know, to different European countries on your dime. I want to do it so I can improve the show, sit with people, have real in-depth, heartfelt conversation with them in person. People have agreed to do it. Well, I won't say their names because I don't want to spoil the surprise, but there is drag queen activists, a vampire expert, some occultists who live on the coast in country, I will not say, a sort of poetic communist theorist, a psychoanalytic superstar, a rock star legend. There's a lot of people who have already agreed to do the show whenever we're in the same place together. I just need to get to them uh, instead of waiting for them to magically show up in Ireland. Of course, there are a lot of Irish guests that I'm going to record with as well. Um, but I would really love to be able to just get that budget a little higher. So please go to patreon.com forward slash Connor Habib and uh, you'll be contributing to that mission, that part of the show uh, that will bring a whole new cast of characters. And also by virtue of that, by having people from different places on the show, expand the audience of the show to uh, contribute to the mission really of getting people to have these kinds of conversations, be inspired to have these kinds of conversations in their own life from listening uh, to conversations about deep ideas. Okay, that's the pitch.
patreon.com forward slash Connor Beeb. Now I want to tell you about this episode with Brian O'Connor. So I came across Brian's work by chance or divine intervention, whichever one you prefer. I was leisurely lazing um, at a bookstore here in Dublin and I saw his book on idleness, which is idleness, a philosophical essay, on the shelf. And I just picked it up and started looking at it, and I was totally glued to it. Um, You may have noticed a common topic on this show is dissolving work. I talked about it on Against Everyone, Connor Beebe, 69, with Heather Berg and Sovereign Sire. I talked about it on the Franco Bifo Berardi episode and myself on uh, episode 85 called Abolish Work. But Brian has an even more radical critique of work than I, myself, or any of the other guests, I think, do. And he's critiquing the concept of self-improvement itself. Um, So in other words, he's saying, like, look, we can get rid of work and the wage-labor relationship that we have right now, but if we don't actually uh, critique the idea of self-improvement, aren't we still just kind of replicating the same moves as uh, being at work? So this is a really big challenge to me because I'm all about self-improvement in case you haven't noticed. I mean, I'm not like Tim Ferriss or someone who does these kinds of radical experiments with just eating beans for, you know, three months and jumping into freezing cold water to, um, you know, make his abs look better or whatever. I mean, I don't know if that actually works. Don't do that at home. But I also uh, am very invested in and interested in how to develop and cultivate the capacities uh, that we have as human beings. So Brian's book, uh, which critiques the critiques of idleness and laziness and leisureliness, uh, really was a challenge to me, but I was also super interested in it because it overlapped with my concerns about why work sucks. And um, Brian also achieved which I, what I thought would be impossible for me, which is that he reignited, re-enlivened my love and appreciation for Theodore Adorno, uh, the critical theorist who um, I have been kind of dismissing for years and years after initially liking him like decades ago when I first discovered him, especially because he has this bad book about astrology called Stars Down to Earth. But Brian has written an introduction to Adorno um, that is so riveting and great and really encompasses all of Adorno's thoughts. So That was also really exciting for me, and I'm bringing that up because Adorno is a key to this discussion about idleness because he's the one that really identifies, hey, even in a world without the same wage-labor relationship we have now, we'd still be working our asses off and trapped in a very similar arrangement if we're not careful. So he's like, yeah, you could have free time, but what are you all going to do in your free time? Beware of what you do in your free time. All right, so I think that that's a great intro. I don't know. Did you think it it was a great intro? I did (laughs) to this episode. Um, And I'm really excited to share uh, this episode with philosopher, uh, writer, and philosophy professor at University College Dublin, Brian O'Connor. One last thing, sorry about some of the heavy breathing. Uh, We weren't uh, putting a lot of effort into it. I just turned Brian's mic up a little too high. You'll hear some breathing, and I probably shouldn't have said anything about it because you wouldn't have noticed it if I didn't. But um, 
actually, I think you would have. Just imagine us sort of leisurely hanging out and having these kinds of uh, rested, relaxed breaths. <laughs> but anyway, uh, I do think uh, it's not going to get in the way of you enjoying the episode at all. Um, let me know what you think, and uh, I hope that this inspires you to do nothing. All right, here we go. Hey everybody, it's Against Everyone with Connor Beeb, and I am excited to be here with an, another Connor, sort of, Brian O'Connor. Hello. Hi, Connor. <laughs> um, so I think let's just, let me just sort of tell you when I was reading Idleness, um, and also I want to talk about Adorno quite a bit on this episode, but when I was reading Idleness, I was thinking about how difficult it's been for me to be idle in my life. And, um, you know, recently around my birthday, I went to Connemara and got like a cottage that had no Wi-Fi and no cell or whatever. And I just stayed there by myself for a bit. And um, I said this on the episode with uh, Franco Bifa Berardi, the Italian theorist, that it was like... Uh, I found myself sort of catching up like it, it, it was so intense. So there's a story that John Moriarty has about like uh, the soul catching up, like the soul has to catch up, you know, at a, at a certain point. And that's what felt I felt like my soul was catching up, you know, like I was so unable to be idle that uh, I needed the time for like the idle self to rush back to me. And it, it's, you know, you make this interesting point at the end of the book that's like, is something like the idle, what is it? Idleness is like being at home in yourself or something. I forget the exact line, but mm. you, you make the point. And so um, I want to talk about the difficulties of being idle mm. first and also ask you if you have a hard time with it <laughs> yourself. Yeah, I, I do. I yeah. think if I didn't, I wouldn't have felt any motivation to write the book. I think it's because there is a struggle, one I feel, one many people feel, that there seems to be something interesting in exploring w what the origins of that struggle are. And obviously from the philosophical point of view, what kind of arguments are given to, in a way, suppress that struggle? Uh, because we're told by all kinds of moralist philosophers, chief among them at a certain point, that idleness is, is wrong. So their way of intervening in the struggle is to say, no, don't struggle to be idle, struggle against it and make the most of the time that you have for all kinds of ends that they identify. Well, yeah, I mean, it's interesting, too, because, like, I heard you talk about the book on a, other shows and how, you know, you locate its origin in kind of, like, two places. Um, and one is, like, this thing that Kant wrote that kind of bothered you. And then the other, and we can talk about what that is, but the other was um, just the recession in Ireland and mm -hmm. seeing how people's lives kind of um, collapsed into themselves when work was being pulled out of the mm -hmm. equation in a certain mm -hmm. way. But you didn't really talk about your own personal struggles with that. <laughs> like, and I wonder, and I kind of wondered like, 
this draw, I mean, sure, like Kant says this thing about, what is it, the South Seas or something, you know, and and people who live there in an idyllic, mm. you know, like kind of life and how like frustrating that is for mm. him in a way. But you were really drawn to that, like so much so that it pulled you into writing mm. a book, you know, mm. or whatever, rerouting mm. the symptoms of your repressed idleness into writing a book or whatever, however you want to say it. Mm. But uh, so I was kind of just wondering about the shape that it might take for you, you know, as much as you feel <laughs> okay disclosing. <laughs> mm. No, I don't think there's anything very remarkable about my relationship with it. I mean, I, I, I as is clear from your introduction, I'm some sort of professional in this world, so I've learned how to work. Uh, I don't, I don't mind working. Uh, but like everyone else, I notice that the barriers between work and not working are. Uh, much more porous than they used to be. And I guess I'm lucky to be in a profession where the work doesn't always feel like work, but most people aren't fortunate enough to be able to claim that. And they're working all the time, they're dreaming about their holidays, their leisure, about the moment when they no longer have to answer the emails or the, or the calls from the, from the office or from clients. And I think there's something in that that deserves attention. Um, yeah, I mean, would I would I like to be more idle? Well, I suppose what I all I can say is that I would like if some of the time I had was used more meaningfully. Because even in a, a job like this, there can be pretty pointless uh, tasks set set upon us that take us away from. The kind of work that makes us feel that we're, you know, in control of ourselves. But some people, I guess, have the image that, well, you'll never have control of your work. Work is not a place where such things happen. And so leisure, idleness, you know, a, a total departure from the world of work is the only uh, is the only thing. So, so there are beguiling images. And, you, you know, you spoke about Kant there. I think anyone who looks at that bit by Kant, it's a very fleeting reference and it's not something he... He places a lot of weight on, but I think everyone has some image of the South Sea Islanders. You know, maybe it's from movies, maybe it's from looking at paintings by Gauguin or, or whatever. Uh, but it looks like the a world that it would be hard to surpass. That people don't do more than they need to do. They seem to be content. Notions like stress and anxiety we imagine, we're possibly projecting our own. Uh, fears uh, of, of how we live uh, onto some blank space, but uh, we imagine that they live uh, without stress and without anxiety, and when a philosopher decides that that's a poor example for us, you feel the need to to react. I think, so there's this really small book by David Graeber called Fragments of an Anarchist Anthropology, and in it he sort of details uh, a couple, or I think three cultures, but he hones in on two, as I remember, where he says, well, you know, it looks in some ways as if there's a kind of e egalitarian and even idle, you know, life going on. But what we don't acknowledge is that there was a constant, like, inner war of sorcery and, like, nego negotiation that was going on. And in some ways, like, I'm wondering about the differences there. Like, so, so the inner life was very... Act, what we would call the inner life is very active and very present in these kinds of like effortful engagements, you know, 
and yet the outer sort of material conditions seem kind of idle. And so your book, though, is delineating, is not, is not cutting it off at that. You're saying, no, actually, it's also kind of an inner re relax, relaxedness. Is that a word? Yeah, relaxedness. <laughs> um, there's a kind of a, an inner quality of also not striving in a way, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so, you know, in some ways I would say, like, maybe Kant's looking upon, you know, whatever civilization or nation he thinks he, or community he thinks he's looking upon and maybe missing some of the things that are going on. But on the other hand, like you're yourself taking that a step forward and saying, yeah, but I actually also mean maybe what Kant thought was happening, you know, which is like, I don't want to constantly be in a state of work even when I'm just kind of sitting around. Right. Mm. Yeah. Something, something like that. I, I think that's it. There's, there's, there's probably very little room for anything other than that experience under the conditions in which we live. There is a there is a restlessness. I mean, we're well trained animals, uh, and that training is geared towards keeping us alert for opportunities that will, you know, advance us materially or intellectually even. Um, and so, all of those impulses are very strong. But I, I, I maintain, and indeed Kant himself, who is known for a particular vision of human beings, concedes that there is nevertheless this desire for rest and a desire for departure. What's intriguing about him are the, the lengths he goes to uh, in various places to sort of outlaw those tendencies and those inclinations. Um, so, I mean, uh, in a way, I mean, Kant goes... He has a richer account of human beings than some of the traditional moralists who who just think that there's something sort of morally deranged about those who would want to idle. Kant at least concedes that it is, a, it is an, an impulse, it is a tendency, but from the point of view of morality, it's not a worthy one. But you have plenty of people who are beguiled by images of, you know, homo economicus, the homo laborans, and the, you know, the endlessly striving uh, individual who who finds their identity in the the machine-like system. Uh, that's not that's not Kant. That's what makes him interesting uh, for me. He's he has a reasonably good account of what kind of creatures we are, but in the end, morality has to force us into being one kind of actor rather than another. Yeah, you're making me think. Then, like, so the idea of I mean, you use the word desire, right? So I'm wondering. Like, do you think that psychoanalysis can bring us to a place of um, engaging with idleness in a way? So w why I'm thinking that is like, <laughs> it's almost like, you know, like we're working to avoid looking at a kind of, or the constant like productivity and work and everything is a way in some senses of avoiding a confrontation with the lack. Now, I don't accept everything that psychoanalysis says, but... You know, I did Lacanian analysis for four years, so I'm I'm thoroughly fucked up enough to believe that some of it is, works. Um, <laughs> but the the idea of you know, I keep perpetuating this cycle of productivity because I don't want to face the fact of being idle. So mm -hmm. if if maybe I go to analysis, it kind of can dim some of that. I mean, I think maybe an analyst would reject me 
saying that it would change anybody's behavior and but that you might have this um maybe mediation is the term and see like oh no actually like i'm trying to avoid being with myself and doing nothing Mm. you know and being nothing Mm. in a sense well that could be i guess in psychoanalysis it all depends on the person i mean there are and there are no end of objectives in psychoanalysis I think possibly one that most analysts would be happy to agree is a is an objective of deep analysis is to give the the person a new perspective on how they understand their own identities. Uh, you know, to take that st- step back uh, to understand how they behave and why they think that behavior is objectively the only one they they need to pursue, and it, it may well be that they discover in themselves that a success drive of some kind is, uh, isn't as important as they, they thought or it was something that they adopted without realizing and so on. And that might open for a different kind of space. Uh, I guess many would be surprised if a psychoanalyst turned somebody into a more effective business executive. <laughs> uh, it doesn't seem to be geared towards success, but it's, it's not geared towards well, perhaps in Lacan's Le- crazier moments, it might be geared towards debilitation. I like that you think there's a hierarchy of crazy moments. Yeah. It's not <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I know exactly what, what you mean. Um, but uh, I guess it's not supposed to be debilitating either. But yeah, there, there surely will be people who, in a sense, feel the need to talk about themselves because uh, they can't quite identify the source of their dissatisfaction with their endless striving. Mm. And it may well be that there's some sort of idleness urge that would turn out to be more consistent with, I guess, their, what would we say, their psychic set. Mm. Yeah, well, I mean, because I'm also just thinking of like what an insult it is to say to someone, you don't want to be a better person, right? Mm. Like, I, because I'm, you know, I had a friend... I would never say anything like this now, but I had a friend when when I was 26, maybe, um, like I said to her, because she she had graduated from college and she was this really like intense kind of gung-ho feminist theorist minded kind of person in college. And then she just like worked at a bakery and she loved her job at the bakery. And I said, and to me it was such a compliment and I, but I can hear how horrible of a thing it is to say. I said, oh, you have the courage to be ordinary. Mm. And she never spoke to me again mm. after I said that. She was so upset. And well, on the one hand, I understand it's like a little bit of an insensitive comment. And especially when you're in your 20s, like that's a really hard thing to take. But I also like, it's a bit of an overreaction, you know, <laughs> in some ways to be like that upset about it. But I think... Um, uh, so sorry, Janelle, if you're listening to this <laughs> podcast, uh, like 20 years later almost. But uh, but I think that like it's so against you know where our ethics and even our morals are about like who we are to say you don't really actually have to be a better person. Like you don't have to do that self improvement work. Mm. You know, um, in fact maybe one of the best things you can do is like leave that cycle altogether. Mm. I mean, it's really offensive to people, I think. Mm. Yeah, I think you're right. I think you really put your finger on what the central issue here is. 
I mean, there are a number of dimensions to it, but if 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 you you know go back to the incident with Janelle, it's it it highlights the importance of opinion uh, in the end it, that we all want to be well thought of, and your comment clearly conveyed a certain societal perspective on what she was doing. Uh, so she wanted to be well thought of, but she also wanted to have a life that was more consistent with her sense of herself. And there's a, there was a tension there that your your comment, in a sense, exploded. She, she couldn't live with the tension because you forced her to confront the dramatic departure from societal expectations. So I, I think that that's where really this whole worry about idleness has to be placed in the idea that in the absence of giving any legitimacy to the idle impulse, we will feel nothing but disappointment with ourselves because we're not striving, we're not improving, we're not moving up the ladder, uh, we're not hitting the mark set out for us in the conventional paths of success. Um, and I think I think that's what makes, in some ways, some of the philosophers I looked at so pernicious because in a sense, they have the most conventional view of self-improvement, of progress through self-improvement, but they are able to defend it in the most sophisticated ethical theories. And, th and they give it a kind of a glory or dignity that is far, far uh, more impressive than finger-wagging or normal everyday judgmentalism. Yeah, well, in some ways, it's sort of like a weird, like, carryover of, like, the Greeks being excited about how someone was killed in battle, isn't it? Like, in some ways, like, it seems to me it's like, for the Greeks, it, and, you know, to the Romans, I guess, to a lesser extent, it's like, it's the body, you know, like, the body and its efforts, and even its, like, like dis dissolution are, like, totally ennobled and glorified, but, like, for... <laughs> Con and then like all the philosophers who come after that are doing this justification work it's like the self like needs to be impaled on the spear constantly you know <laughs> and like and that's somehow like noble or something like that yeah uh, cer certainly in the more rigorous versions of the theory the self is always under pressure uh, always under pressure uh, you know I, I, I don't I don't want to sound like I think of Kant as a demon, but he <laughs> he he captures those impulses so powerfully, uh, I think. <laughs> For him, morality individuals who are moral in the in the most impressive sense are those who have overcome a struggle. And in a sense human settlements or human communities that are most impressive are those who have overcome struggles, whereas to go back to the South Sea Islanders, they are fortunate to live in a sort of a happy climate where they don't have the same struggles perhaps as grim northern Europeans trying to e eke out uh, ways of self-preservation. But nevertheless, that leaves them in a situation where there is no struggle and therefore, in a sense, nothing morally impressive. It's just a it's just a, a natural way of living. And that's one of the great, you know, uh, I would say, almost catastrophe points that we see with the uh, Enlightenment is that 
anything that looks like it is simply natural is to be suspect. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. And then, in some ways, that does find its culmination in Freud, right? Like, you can't even know. Like, you can't even know why you're doing anything that you're doing. Like, everything then is, like, suspicious, mm. right? And subject to interrogation. But yes, at least I suppose yes. in that case, like, the interrogation is, like, to get you to stop interrogating so much in a way, you know? No, but you're right. I mean, obviously, Freud's position is, is very complicated, but it does pursue some assumption about making oneself transparent, mm-hmm. of overcoming the idea that it, that somebody is just the way they are without any possibility of really taking a, you know, a sideways view of that. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, I'm thinking also. So there's that recently published conversation between Adorno and Hork- Horkheimer. Am I saying his name right? Yes. I've, li- I've never heard anyone say his name. I have to say. Oh, let, let, <laughs> let, 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 let me let me make it official then. Horkheimer. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Horkheimer. Horkheimer. Okay. So there's a conversation between them, and uh, and he says something like, um, like I forget how it comes about, but Adorno is like really like suspicious of this question which is like well if people don't work what will they do with their free time Mm. you know and he's like see you're even asking this question Mm. like what kind of problem does that present us with and i thought that that was really astute and then also but you you take that up in your own way in the book because like people assume in your book idleness because people assume that like you'll be bored if you have nothing to do, mm. but then there's the assumption that boredom is bad, right? Mm. So let me take this a little f- further and say, well, so then I'm like, okay, well, th- is boredom bad? And then there are philosophers, like there's Rudolf Steiner and then there's Adam Phillips, the British psychoanalyst, who both talk about boredom being productive. And so I'm like, God, I'm just, even though they have a positive view of boredom, I'm being cycled back into like, a, a question of productivity, mm. you know? So like, even as you start to shake off some of these like conceptual bonds, like you get completely cycled back into this idea yes, of yes. being productive. Yes, I, I agree with that. I mean, there are a lot of different things in what you say about, to start with, the question of whether you're bored when idle. Well, I mean, at the beginning of this interview, you mentioned the time you spent in the... Uh, cottage somewhere in in, the, in in Ireland and I, I think what you're saying is at the beginning it was it was difficult and I suppose that the difficult, whole time it was difficult the whole time yeah. was difficult <laughs> and because the problem is boredom in a way I, I assume I, I mean there may be other things in, in a situation like that like loneliness and isolation but but there is a sense of of boredom uh, that's that's very real but why wouldn't it be you know as I as I said myself earlier we're well-trained animals and w- if we're deprived of the opportunity to kind of um, exercise the skills we've been trained to, to do well there, there's there's a kind of a there's a negative experience but I, I do I really agree v- very much with what you say about the effort to appropriate boredom and I, I can't say I have a, a very deep understanding of the theories behind those kinds of recyclings as you put it but the thought of course is that Everything in the human organism is uh, an evolutionary um, development that confers some kind of survival advantages. And 
even something like boredom must have a purpose. Uh, and then they, they conjecture, uh, well, they assert what they think that purpose is, of course, and it's to give you the opportunity to gain insight into what you would like to do. But I find that very phony myself, because I think most people know why they're bored, because they've been prevented from doing the thing they they want to do. Now, there may be there may be grander moments of boredom in life, some existential crisis where a person who has committed themselves to some particular way of life over many years falls it finds it falling away from them, it becomes dull, boring, ennui, and so on. And maybe that is an opportunity for them to ask themselves a question about, well, where they're going and what would be better. But I think virtually every other instance of boredom is about uh, being prevented from doing the thing you know you would like to do. If, so if people are bored watching a movie or having a conversation of some kind is because they're not they're simply not enjoying. They don't feel that they have a, an opportunity to exercise the things they would like to exercise. Yeah, it's interesting too because there's one passage from Tolstoy in your book and he mentions the military and I was thinking also about the ways in which that boredom through idleness can be weaponized, right? Because if you think about people, I mean, he doesn't say this, but it, it sent me off this path like Think about people in the military, like in combat zones, spending most of their time just kind of lying around. And mm. then, like, it's punctuated by, like, ba like battle time where people, like, jump up and, like, and go and do something. So it's almost, like, I almost view the military as, like, doing that, you know, to, to people. It, it's weirdly contrast to, like, the concept of, like, time theft in capitalism where, like, if you're a worker at a bookstore... Like I worked at a Barnes and Noble for a long time when I was m much younger and like it you had to like clean the vents, even if they were clean, mm. you know, like mm. if there weren't, a, it wasn't anybody in the store mm. at the cash register, the cash wrap, I don't know what it's called that, but at the cash wrap, like you had to like clean the vents or you had to go do this or that. And it was like, well, you have to spend your time doing something. Mm. Right. But somehow like the military is saying like, we're actually going to make you stick around and be completely bored. And then like, guess what? We'll let you be excited too. Mm. And in that excitement, you'll have to kill someone or potentially kill someone, but it'll be a, uh, it'll be a relief from idleness mm. in a way, you know? So it, the way it's bound up makes it useful to people in power as well, I think. Yeah. So I think somehow Tolstoy's example, it captures the idea of, a, of of probably the most respectable way of being idle, because after all, the soldiers belong to some grander purpose. By virtue of wearing the uniform, they have some kind of respect. They have minimal duties, as you say, apart from when 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 the the battles get going. And yeah, most of the time, they they can they can stave off the kind of shame of idleness because they can say, "Well, we are." Here in uniform, we are doing a job. Uh, so that I thought that was very interesting that that example in in Tolstoy because it 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 revealed a number of things that one way of being idle is without embarrassment is if is if in some sense the job is structured to that way because the the job gives you a certain institutional respectability uh, and that's again another thing that worries people is that 
to be idle in a non-institutional context is to be, um, you know, an embarrassing, an embarrassing dropout. Somebody who has, and somebody who has to struggle with the sharp view of others about what that what that life really means. But the, the but the 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 military dosser, to use a, a Dublin word, uh, is is somebody who kind kind of gets away with it because there's institutional. Uh, legitimacy in not doing things much of the time yeah it's well it's so interesting then you're just making me think of like like how powerful our response to the military is that like really it can get it can make like even something as much of the enemy like to our civilization and the way we think it works is idleness Mm. it can redeem that as long as it puts it in the framework you know Mm. like that's so that's really intense. Well, I'm, I'm obviously I'm thinking of the U.S. military, not the I. I don't have no idea what the Irish military, if they're even really. Uh, and, is and, like. and and I guess uh, <laughs> I guess uh, Tolstoy's view of the Imperial Russian Army in the 19th century might not be right. <laughs> what goes on in any modern army either. I I honestly don't know myself. Yeah. So. Um, <laughs> so I'm also thinking like. <laughs> He made this really funny comment on a on a, another podcast you did where he said something like, um, I thought, you know, when I when I looked into idleness and I saw these philosophers coming up with these sort of bend over backwards, like or maybe it's not even such a stretch, but like like elaborate, you know, condemnations of it. I thought, you know, if philosophers find it repellent. Maybe there's like freedom there, mm. <laughs> which I find really funny. Like, I I would like to know what you mean by that, being a philosopher yourself a little bit. But then also like, uh, what freedom, like what freedom you did find in the sense that the philosophers were kind of hiding away this piece, or maybe in some ways exhibiting it without realizing it. You know. I'm not sure I remember what I was thinking uh, <laughs> in, in that remark, and and when you describe it as funny, I, 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 that was probably an accident because I'm not normally fu- funny at, uh, at, I don't know, at I've been all. I'm laughing a lot, man. <laughs> um, I I guess I do entitle myself to be quite censorious towards the philosophers, since they themselves have no hesitation in being sens- censorious. Uh, as such there are there are there are different views about what freedom is as you know um and i did find in spite of the fact that in the end hegel is not a pro idleness philosopher but he has a very happy formulation for freedom which is that broadly speaking being at home in the world now that can be interpreted in different ways i mean you could say that uh, a well cut cog in the machine is at home in the world you know the the little bit of your of clockwork that works to perfection is doing precisely what it does without stress but there are other ways of being at home but primarily to feel that the world is not there bearing down upon you with expectations that are just uh, stress inducing where there are disturbing demands made upon your conception of what you would like to do i think that's why i'm sometimes censorious towards philosophers um and again i don't recall the context in which that remark came up but i think anyone who's lucky enough to be a genius of philosophy philosophy like the philosophers i discussed 
surely have the most uh what would we say elevated relationship to the 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 only kind of freedom that's maybe legitimate which is the fr- is the freedom to think without uh what should we say without pressure because it's it's clearly effortless for figures like Kant, Hegel and Schopenhauer, effortless business of thinking and to be very much at home with themselves in that regard. Um, but the kind of work that they take is not representative of work for the vast majority of their fellow human beings. Well, I mean, you can see it, like, then oppose it to, like, Wittgenstein, you know. It's just constant torment with his own thoughts. You know, it's like there is an effort there that for some philosophers who are also, you know, great, I don't know what you think of Wittgenstein, but are also great philosophers. I mean, I would think that, like, you can also see continuous effort that looks very much like physical effort, Mm. you know? Mm. Um, So much so that he, I mean, actually, maybe he's a really interesting example because he joins the military, like, Mm. in some way to not get away from his thinking, but to have a different kind of thinking, you know? Mm. But yes, philosophical yeah. labor can be uh, difficult, uh, for even for the geniuses, I'm sure, and Marx himself talks about the most damnably difficult thing of intellectual work. Uh, some philosophers seem to do it with ease. I mean, I presume philosophers who write many, many books and papers uh, whatever theme enters their minds just have a natural facility but even for the Wittgensteins uh, who who I, I agree with you there is a sense of that kind of torment with the concepts he's negotiating I can't believe that that is more demanding than the kind of physical menial labor that many people perform or that it is less enjoyable than a world where people are 24-7 at the mercy of the demands of their clients or their offices and so on. But I agree that, that takes my answer takes the point away from the one you're making. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Thanks a lot. Uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> no, I mean, I think, like, I guess I, I do think that for some people it probably is as difficult, and only because I know from struggling with different forms of depression in my life that that definitely exceeded any kind of physical pain that I felt, you Mm. know, that I've ever felt like the worst physical pain I've ever been in. It didn't even touch like coming close to the kind of pain. The quality is completely different. Mm. It's not, it's not that like there's the quality is the same. I mean, they obviously feel very different getting a burn, you know, like if I burned my hand and got third degree burn on my hand or whatever, or first degree burns on my hand, you know, versus, like having depression, obviously very different kinds of pain. And yet the more unbearable one was the depression, you know? Mm. And I think part of it is the torment of thinking, you know, if you're Wittgenstein, like this is never going to end. Like these, this like battle with concepts is never going to go away. Mm. At least there's some rest, you know, Mm. from physical labor in a sense, you know? Mm. There there must surely be a sense of satisfaction when the work is done though for, 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 for a Wittgenstein. When hmm. when he realizes no matter how indifferent he might appear to be to the opinion of others, but when he realizes that the the great thinkers of his academic environment want to talk to him 
want, want to hear more. And he wants to threaten them with pokers. Indeed, yeah. <laughs> indeed no, no, no doubt it gets, it gets very fraught. But there is, there is that satisfaction. Uh, there is that satisfaction that's, uh, that I, I assume, I mean, unless Wittgenstein is very different from virtually everyone else, there must be satisfaction when a piece of work is completed and the discussion begins or the discussion ends uh, or revolves around the piece of work itself. That's, that's something, I've, obviously, a privilege that very few can have. Yeah, I think you're right. Like there must be the satisfaction. Although I then I do wonder if there are exceptions. Like for Wittgenstein, I would think. But then if I think of like Strindberg or maybe even like Kierkegaard or something like that, I'm like, you guys are never happy. Like there, there was no satisfaction. <laughs> but maybe that's not true. You know, I don't know. It's difficult to enter the psychic space of 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 these extraordinary individuals. Yeah, yeah, that's true. I so, I, you know, one of the things. So not working. And like the, the abolition of work comes up on the show a lot. So I did a whole episode on it just on my own, like talking about it. I talked recently, as I mentioned before, with Franco Vifa Berardi. There had been a bunch of Marxist socialists on the show that sort of lean towards post-work stuff. But it's interesting because all that stuff revolves around the problem with the wage-labor relationship. Mm. Like it's not about idleness, you know, um, and in fact, you might have a world where you completely push yourself constantly to be a better person and uh, to do self-improvement and to, you know, do CrossFit and eat a paleo paleolithic mm. diet and all that kind of shit. But, um, but that doesn't really, it doesn't really come up for you, which is interesting to me that, and yet it like in your, in your work with Adorno, like one of the things that you present well, I mean, Adorno presents it, but you clarify it, I think, really well, is that, you know, a huge problem for Adorno is the kind of, I would say, almost like fundamental fantasy of our culture, which is that everything is transactional, that everything has its own kind of like, and so to get out of that, what is it, the social totality, I think you mm -hmm, call it, like, mm -hmm. that's impossible. Like, so, you know, it, it, it's impossible, like, from a sort of normal standpoint, right? We keep sort of cycling in, to this transactional mode and it keeps guiding our behaviors back to it and all that and yes. it becomes this sort of circle and so it's interesting to think that even the kind of marxist critiques and the critiques that i've leveled before and that i think are really interesting so much of it has to do with just questioning the wage labor relationship but not actually this transactional psyche mm. which i think adorno does but i'd like to maybe hear more about that yeah I, and just let me say i really like the way you describe the dynamics of the social totality i think that's a, a really brilliant way of, of formulating it um it is really the background to why adorno thinks critical theory is so difficult as well because philosophical efforts to pinpoint the uh more damaging aspects of the social totality are in in many ways caught up or, or never completely free of the languages and values of the social totality. In other words, philosophy isn't as it was for maybe millennia, a special space that you can step into and be divested of all 
of the values of the very thing you're talking about, you know, some transcendent space. Um, yeah, and I think that Adorno's philosophy, he, of course, formally labels it himself negative, is negative for a reason, is, is simply that positive, positive proposals are not feasible for the most part at this point. And I certainly found that a congenial methodology. It's, it's one that I uh, adopted myself in the idleness book. Sometimes through the frustration of, of readers um, who found it a little bit high-handed of me to have so many different ways of criticizing the impulse to work without actually giving positive proposals for how we might overcome that. I, I think philosophy, critical philosophy, it can really only do the most preliminary work and it may not even be very successful in that respect. The preliminary work, at least in identifying the forces and the tendencies that uh, drive us in various ways, uh, to, to bring them out from the background uh, and to, to make them look like something we can, we can talk about. Uh, I think that's Adorno's method. It's, as I say, the one I certainly strongly influenced by. Uh, and I, I think that you can, you can do that sort of work, but people with a more practical mind find it frustrating because they say, okay, fair enough, we, you know, we get your point, you know, society is oppressive, opinion drives us to work, to make ourselves stressed and miserable. Now tell us what we should do, what we should do to overcome that. Mm -hmm. I, I, can you imagine this sort of insight that will be required to, to answer a question like that in a way that wouldn't be just ridiculously vague and grandiose? How how do we make proposals that are going to completely change change people's psychological sets that are going to give us a society that doesn't collapse into poverty and famine and so on? I haven't the faintest idea, but the best. I think I can do in my own Adornian way is to pull out from the background a certain institutional assumption that doesn't get enough consideration. Yeah, I mean, so it's interesting the way you you framed it there because when I was thinking about Adorno before this episode and thinking about that negative quality, like you do see it, I mean, again, not to keep harping on Wittgenstein, you see it in Wittgenstein, you see it in Meister Eckhart, a lot to this idea what's the my record only the hand that erases can write the true thing he says you know <laughs> but there's an idea that once you do some of that once you do that kind of removal there's space for something else to grow and um you know but it <laughs> in some ways it has to almost have the aim of leaving the leaving the circle you know this like sort of mythological reoccurring circle so one of the things i try to say for like my kind of political viewpoint and it sounds kind of like crazy was like we aren't we shouldn't be trying to like have a revolution because that's also the form of mm. you know the circle anyway mm. but like what we can do is kind of like bugs bunny cartoons where like bugs bunny's running and being chased by somebody and then he's in an alley and they're cornering him and he pulls out a piece of chalk and draws a door and then like opens the door and walks through like almost we need to create a completely new opportunity for ourselves, you know, 
And that's very difficult, obviously, when all the conditions of the social totality are like bearing down on us or informing us and guiding us. But the only way to do that really is to make room for it in a way, is to make room for a new kind of possibility. And it's not as if that, like, I, I don't know how to do it, but like, you know, part of it is the book, you know, I, the idleness book kind of aims towards that project in a way, because you're saying like, okay, here's what all these people said about idleness here's why there's some problems with what they said. And then people in, in inevitably will be like, so how do I do that, mm-hmm. Brian? You know? And, and you're like, well, I don't, I don't fucking know, you know, but I'm just saying like, you know, these are some of the problems, but the thing is like, you've opened up a kind of space. And so for me, the takeaway from idleness really is like, I don't have to be idle there's no demand being here to uh, demand being made on me to be idle, Mm. but I can also forgive myself for it when I am. Mm. And that forgiveness gives me so much more psychic space. If I'm just like lying around the house and doing nothing and I'm like, I should get up. I should do this. I should do this. I was like, Oh, why? And then as soon as that happens, like at least there's an uh, alleviation of some anxiety, Mm. you know, and that gives me something. You right. know, even though you didn't try in some ways effortlessly just sort of mm. <laughs> idly you know through the extreme effort of your book you know gives that kind of space right well that's it that's interesting and i i i, I possibly have even managed to give myself that so, sort of uh, freedom by thinking about those issues i Moving them from a sort of philosophical hunch I had four or five years ago into the space of a of a completed book clearly i had to think about those things too yeah i mean uh, and there's another thing i wanted to go back to um it it occurs to me about uh why we would promote idleness rather than anything else when it comes to um oh i think we were talking about you know forms of self-realization i was thinking one of another thing that was in the background when i was writing the book i didn't i don't think i gave any space to it in the book but i'm interested in in ongoing developments in excuse me in frankfurt school critical theory and there is a very interesting phase of frankfurt school critical theory now which is criticized by many not only myself as being reformist in attitude what i mean by that is that it's essentially happy with the institutions of our modern world but believes they need to be improved they need to be reformed so work is not something that needs to be fundamentally questioned it just needs to be improved there is a a rather romantic idealistic idea that the right kinds of work in the right kinds of society are the most fulfilling ways towards self-realization. Now, I don't deny that that might be the case. And there are probably many people who are lucky enough to have work which feels just like that. And the thought is, wouldn't it be great if everyone had work like that? But my worry is that 
it sort of leaves behind the critical side of critical theory and doesn't negotiate try to negotiate the question of whether work itself as uh, is is irreformable once upon a time work was described by almost everyone as a necessary evil and i think if it was still described as that it mightn't be a bad thing instead it's given a positive representation or if work in some cases is lousy it can be improved uh you know it can be reformed it can be ma- made more humane but the more we do that the more we lose sight of what what it is that gives us the initial impulse that perhaps we would rather not work yeah i mean i i totally agree um <laughs> i mean i think that you know having done like a lot of advocacy work for sex workers I'm just sort of thinking like, you know, this like completely to some people's mind contradictory term of sex work, right? Like that these two things, but I think that sex workers more than a lot of other kind of laborers can see the ways in which their job erodes the kind of view we have of work, Mm. you know? And I think that that's a real opportunity. It's like rather than saying, then locating the entire struggle in the sphere of labor, which is what's been done traditionally, we can say, what is it about your job that makes it less like work? And instead of stopping there and saying, so we can all like, you know, oh, well, I work at Google and I get to eat organic cereal in the morning and, you know, whatever, the celebrity stops by the office, it's so cool. And that makes my job so much more fun. Mm. Instead say, like, what are these qualities? Okay, now, can we have those qualities without the wage labor relationship mm. tacked on to them? Mm. So it's this kind of like flip, you know, that I think we could do. Cause one of the things that's really like disappointing to me is the way in which labor rights conversations, they then critique the content of the labor, which is like, so, I mean, it's just the sex work one is the classical way. Well, it's just exploitation because it's happening under coerced conditions of labor. Or it could be, you know, that you you think that everybody has a false consciousness. Like, they're working, they have false consciousness, they don't really like their jobs, and they're all being, like, forced. But the fact is, a lot of us enjoy the activities we do. Mm-hmm. So the way I try to shift it is say, instead of saying, what job do you want or what do you want to do? Let's ask the question, like, what would you like your day to be like, you know? And then you have a different, you have a different set of terms for some kind of, I hesitate to use the word political, but some kind of like new social engagement or question uh, ahead of you that kind of can pull us away from, I think what you're saying, which is this anchor of work that's Mm. constantly there. Mm. Well, I don't think I could really add to that. I think that is a very good way, a very good way in. And uh, in fact, uh, I think one of the one of the strengths it has is it is able to speak in a way that my work doesn't to the question of what positive proposals one should have. I mean, I take the more cautious view. I don't, and I, I'm not worried if it's not perceived as realistic, because my my I'm pretty confident that there's a there's a real question, even if the people worry about the implications of pursuing that question all the way to the elimination of work are highly unrealistic. Uh, 
I, I never actually propose that we eliminate work. I just propose that we think about it uh, uh, and set it aside our other impulses. But it's, e it's easy to dismiss the kind of uh, sort of semi-negative, cautious, uh, non-constructive approach I take precisely on the basis that it's not constructive. And I like the idea that you put forward there of of starting not with work and then how we improve it, but to look at the things that make, as you say, that can give the uh, a superficial sense of the satisfaction of work uh, to make those to make those phenomena the phenomena of the of everyday life. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I do think that's a, I think do think that's a very good idea because if if they can work for work they should work for uh, 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 if they make work seem palatable then they they're probably goods in themselves m ma masking uh, 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 something that isn't itself uh, evidently beneficial to your well-being yeah i mean who knows if you would abandon them as strategies once the work relationship wasn't there anymore but mm. like but kind of so what like i don't need to get two million years ahead of myself i mm. can just get you know 200 years ahead of myself mm. with that like question i kind of also like the way you just said it is reminding me i don't know if you've read uh, any of the peter slaughterdyke stuff that's been coming up but he has that book um i haven't kept up with his writing at uh, all okay yeah i mean it, he's really to me very fascinating because he just goes back and forth from being completely boring to like then he'll write these things that well, he goes, this is like blows my mind, but he has, I think his best book is called you must change your life or the best one that I've read so far. And he has this concept is just like life reform, you mm. know, which is basically like, can we filter like our, like the lens that we're constantly applying to politics and, and all that into the ways that we just do our tasks, which in some ways reminds me of Adorno and minimum moralia where, uh, and 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 Benjamin and and all that where it's like well I'm just going to like what is the I think I even wrote the quote down where he says something like um, um I'm gonna I'm gonna miss it but it's like he's saying like all these things kind of slip through the cracks when we do philosophy or critical theory or whatever and can we not like isn't part of our duty to notice these things that slip past mm. us. Mm. And then in some ways, bring them into a light, you know, um, that, I don't know, that kind of enlivens them in a new way that lets them, uh, lets them speak to us. It's almost animistic in like its own weird way. It's like for Adorno or, or Benjamin even more like to notice the, like the tea kettle and the, the radio and the book and all that. And to just sort of like let them have a kind of life in their philosophy, mm. you know. Yeah, uh, th that's right. I mean, uh, th there are different ways of doing that. Some of which trouble me. But to talk about the good, the good ways of doing it, talk about the troubling ways too. But talk I about will. the good ways. Yeah, well, I mean, I'm probably pretty much along the lines of what you describe. Is that academic philosophy polices itself rather severely and has a strong sense of what kind of things are worthy of philosophical negotiation. And so that has kind of frightened people away from talking about these, these forgotten objects, these forgotten experiences, um, and you know can make the any conversation about those topics or those things seem unserious. 
um, uh, that's right. That that is that is a problem, and and of course the only way to counter that is just to keep doing it and to and to make the point and to to try to excavate those objects and those experiences and those background practices, and to show why they shouldn't be forgotten. But uh, you know, academic philosophy is is very uh, rigid and is not because of its intense professionalization, not always open to hearing new ways of doing things. But I think the, there, is a, there is a bad way of sort of celebrating or noticing the forgotten things. And that's, in a sense, to excessively ennoble them. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking of a book that came out a few years ago that was immensely popular in the United States, but not, not so much over here, by Sean D. Kelly and Hubert Dreyfus. I, I think it's called All Things Shining, All Things Bright, something like that. And it's a very romantic book, which encourages us, in a sense, to reconnect with the bounteous beauty of all things, you know, from from the coffee cup to the glance of the other and so on. And I think that that is a bit mucky, really, because what what that does is simply says, say, everything is good. It's just a matter of seeing everything is has an intrinsic majesty. It's just a question of looking at it in the right way, of adopting a, a view, you know, where you step out of your normal, alienated, everyday life and suddenly start to notice things. Like the, myst- the mystics, I guess, are like that, where there's no feature of, of being that isn't in some sense uh, revelatory. I, I find that I find that a very uh, troublesome view. It, it has, it's completely uncritical of the way things are, and instead simply encourages us to take on a certain warm, glowing feeling towards being around us. And I can't see that it contributes to any improvement in in how we live. And philosophy isn't about it improving even in the smallest ways, how we live or think, uh, I think it's not doing very much at all. Yeah, I mean, I can see how the mystics, like, that seems like a different kind of engagement just because it's theological in in some sense, at least. Like, at least if you have someone who's like an Advaita Vedanta person who's like, everything is perfect, everything is fine, it is as it is, and like, notice this, notice that. Of course, there could be some problems that emerge out of that. But that to, that to me somehow seems more genuine than what you're describing this book as, which I don't know that book. I thought you were actually going to mention object-oriented ontology, which drives me crazy and seems to have at least fizzled out, you know, after a, a bit where, mm. what is it, the dresser or drawer think, or, you know, whatever where the problem for me with that is that it's eliminating the the social total the social totality actually it's eliminated and even more the phenomenological totality of it. like i'm thinking this like <laughs> why do i keep pretending i'm outside my own consciousness interpreting the consciousness of the object when like there's a connective work going on it's mm. not you know so in some ways it's like completely obliterates the human and it, and i think that that relates though to what you were saying it's like well if we just notice like the beauty and 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 all the things it's like well i'm not really seeing your humanity like the range of your humanity in response to the world in that case i haven't read the book so it could be that they preface it by saying like also these things can be met 
with a real sense of, you know, what what's a there's a you know the the Argentine writer Julio Cortazar wrote something in one of his novels that's like the the tyranny of the sun rising each day, you know, mm. like even the thing that we think is mm. so mm. beautiful and gives something to us, like it can make you miserable, you know, depending on what your vantage point is. So mm. to pretend that the world is, you know, only lending this to to us, I think, mm. yeah, I, I understand what, what your critique would be. It's, a, it's about, it's about taking an affirmatory view, I suppose. That's what I, I worry about mm. that, that the the basic order and and run of the world is is not something as philosophers we need to worry about. Instead, we need to reconnect, and that reconnection places the burden on us and mm -hmm. moves the analysis away from the structures that give the world the particular shape and pattern that that it has. It, it's a book in broadly speaking the phenomenological tradition and. Uh, what what some of your listeners probably know is that there there is and and I think there should always be a a, per, a very profound tension between critical thinking and phenomenology. Now, I know some theorists try to bridge that. I think that's because they they find phenomenology an exciting um, philosophical project uh, and feel that it its uh, potential isn't fully exhausted in the epistemological versions that they, they encounter in their academic work. But the tension for me is is always going to be between a philosophy which affirms the full content of experience from the point of view of the experiencer without casting an eye on the social structures that give that experience the meaning it has. And it's critical theory that looks at the meaning of the so you know the, the the content the the content enabling structures uh, and they're not visible to direct phenomenological contact so it's a method that's if you like necessarily blind that's fine all methods have their limitation i think what can become excessive though is when instead of recognizing the limitations of the method they actually sort of twist the world to fit the method and thereby limit the world yeah well so this is a, these are provocative statements for me right because i i i try to frame like the way i think about things as a sort of i've even said in like st talks i've given stuff as a radical phenomenology right but like what i mean by that actually is like in some weird way I mean, look, please give me the smackdown. You heard like um, a f practiced and long working philosopher. Um, and my grasp on some of these terms is, I'm sure, just like really a beginner's grasp. But like, I mean, I think in some ways all phenomenology like leads back to solipsism, like in its own sort of weird way. Like if you really want to take the <laughs> if you really want to take the proposition seriously, for me, that's actually not a problem. Um, there's a, a this occult book, which is the subtitle is "It's All in Your Head." You just have no idea how big your head is, right? So then you actually have a duty to explain the contours of your head, which is a different project, I think. In some ways, I wanted to go further and further and further and deeper and deeper into the individuated, like, or, or into the into the into me into my own sort of. 
<laughs> head in a way. Because I think that individuals, how do I say it? I think that I can apprehend like the social stuff and the conditions and all that. If I make that kind of turn and say, well, they're all in my head. Now, what do I do? How do I understand them? Because they still feel real to me. Now, what do I do? Rather than just dismissing them as illusory, um, actually taking them as real and then going deep into that inquiry. Yeah, well, yeah, we prob we probably don't have to come to blows about <laughs> about the r the right labels for for what either of us is doing. But it strikes me that what you're describing there is a process that is a kind of back and forth between phenomenology and a different way, a sort of a critical social reflection, uh, and. If that is something that you find uh, enables you to generate a critical, a richer critical perspective, then that you know that's that's extremely impressive. I think it's not a purely phenomeno phenomenological approach that you outline there, or you know, profoundly phenomenological, richly phenomenological. Because again, my sense of what phenomenology can't do is all by itself go beyond the phenomenological, go beyond the experience from the point of view of the experiencer or the experience it's itself. Uh, I, I agree that there's enormous value uh, in describing and capturing features of experience that once upon a time were regarded as too personal or too subjective by philosophy. But it only goes so far on its on its own terms. It it seems to me, and I also would 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 say that when you're when you're engaging in a sort of phenomenological self excavation, it's got to be guided by a question, I suppose. And that question, once again, I think doesn't come from phenomenology. If you if we if we could take even the idleness example again. Um, you know, the question w one might ask oneself is, what's going on with me that I want to idle, but I also feel compelled to work? Uh, you can begin to observe your patterns of responding to the world, uh, but the observation is prompted by a certain kind of philosophical question that steps back from the immediacy of, of experience. Yeah, well, I think... I don't know how far down the path we would go before we came to blows about it, but I think that that all sounds good to me. Um, and I think that we would, in some ways, what you're saying and what I'm saying both lead to something that Adorno said, but actually, it's funny because I can't remember if Adorno said it or if you just wrote it, which might please you um, in your book about Adorno, but it's that um, a liberated mankind would by no means be a totality. That's Adorno himself. Okay. okay. Um, could have been you. Could have been you, right? <laughs> but, uh, but I think in whatever road there, like with the the things we're talking about with labor or philosophy or whatever, like I feel if you agree with Adorno's statement, which I do, in that, like I feel that there's in some ways a, a, a duty towards individuation um, and and and. Maybe we don't agree on the idea of the individual, but that it can't 
it can't always reference back to an encompassing system, whether that's labor or, you know, or even the kind of liberation from the wage labor relationship or whatever. It has to be something that deepens, uh, I guess I would say, you know, this loose term of difference. Like it, 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 it doesn't, it doesn't try to destroy difference, you know, and it's, it's, it's like sort of encompassing mm. totality. I, yeah, I think that's right. There are huge imaginative challenges though in working that out because I guess our first step when we think about individuation and what might be positive about it is drawn from the experience of individuation that we, we have in societies like ours. And could we make the fatal mistake that libertarians make, which is of just imagining that same form of individuation minus the totalistic apparatus <laughs> of, of the state. Uh, I, guess, I guess thoughtful people won't make that mistake. But then the question is what sort of individuation they have in mind if it's not the libertarian or classical liberal version of individuality minus an overarching and influencing social totality. I don't know what that is, and indeed it might, it might be extremely risky to talk about positively about what that individuation might be like. Again, the safer approach is to say, well, it won't be. And I think that comment by Adorno is full of uh, negatives. It won't be a totality, but it it won't be just a you know um, a collective of fully formed individuals along the lines of the model of individuality we we have come to understand so what 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 would it what would it be like um i i what i what i i i do agree is that we we often gain a sense of what's important to us in our individuality when we feel it trampled upon where we feel instructed to to believe certain things or to act in certain ways that, that go against the grain but that's that might be a very highly contextualized form of self-discovery of our individuality one that's specific to you know the egoity that is 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 distinctive to the kind of modern self that we we all possess in 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 various ways and again even you know that i mean the, the libertarian mistake is is so glaring that uh it's it's a it's a good warning. It's a it's a constant flashing light of of danger. Be, you know, we could say, well, a different kind of individuality, which would be superior to the libertarian one, is something like what you get in the romantic tradition in the nineteenth century of, or Nietzsche is a representative of this at certain times, of the aesthetic individual who makes themselves in cr free, creative ways in accordance with their own impulses. You might think, well, isn't that what we want? You know, when there's no totality, that's what you want. But it too is a model of individuality rooted in certain kinds of historical experiences. So I can't imagine really what it's like to be individuated outside of the historical circumstances we have known. But yet I share with you the sense that it's got... It, it, it would be something that seems to be important, but I, I feel that it, will, whatever way it will look, it will have all kinds of norms that we haven't yet, you know, found any way of conceiving. Yeah. So let me just say a couple more things, and then we'll wrap it up. But I, um, 
you know, I first think like, okay, like you're an individual, I'm an individual, and that our individuality, yes, is con- conditioned by this social totality. And even when we think it's not, even when we think we're saying something original, it's still being guided, you know, in a lot of ways by this this thing that we're, you know, breathing in and out all the, all the time. But the collection of those conditioned thoughts, those thoughts conditioned by the social totality are actually individual in you. Like mm-hmm. the, the fact that the, the fact that you're a meeting place of these different ones is actually completely unique and individual. So maybe there's a way in that, like I'm an address and you know, all these things sort of meet in me and that nexus is very different, you know, mm-hmm. than anybody else. Even if I can't say the thing that is transcendent, the sort of imminent, self like the 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 totality myself also is its own sort of imminent social totality in a Mm. weird way you know so we are a bunch of like unique social totalities and individual totalities in a social totality if that makes sense yeah um but then also i want to say like as a model something i thought about when i was reading idleness was the was this native american um really forceful guy this guy Russell Means and he has this uh, talk he gave that was recorded and turned into an essay in this book Marxism and Native Americans because like the Marxists thought that they would find these like natural allies and like Native Americans in the fight against capitalism and like these Native American voices are completely critical of Marxism as well and Russell Means is just like well like you're just the same you're just the same to me this is all about uh this uh, what is the uh what is the quote he says something like oh yeah this is all about um needing to gain which is you versus wanting to be Mm. we want to be that's different Mm. and that to me is like that's that flip where it's like this is about i don't think he would use the word desires but i'll just use it here this is about desires like and being worthy of the desires rather than needing to fulfill and like gain the object constantly whether it's an inner one or 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 not um and i think that that's an interesting proposition and maybe that's i don't know i mean i i don't know what that kind of individuality is like and that also is a social you know that also is it has its own it has its own socio-historical conditions yeah but it's but it's interesting to notice ones that probably are significantly and substantially different Mm. because it's like if at least if i can see a bunch of them then maybe something new can grow and that will have its own conditions as well but aren't we tired of the same problems you know (laughs) like that's that's the way i sort of see it is like well there'll be new problems but like maybe like not as boring as these ones that we keep banging our heads against you know yeah yeah well okay so just to end i just want to say you know like there's this adorno quote and i think you it just like in your work and in what i've been taking away from like spending all this time with you before meeting you and having this conversation with you is like he's he says uh the task of philosophy is to in, uh interpret unintentional reality and i love that i love that quote i love that you picked it out you even sort of formed it because you cut out some stuff in the middle i think there's like an ellipsis in there okay and um and i think it's like it's just something i notice about you um in your work is that like 
people give philosophers shit for constant, just like not leaving anything alone, you know, like they just can't leave it alone. You just got to, but like, I think you really present the value in that and what you're doing. So I just want to thank you for. That's very kind, Connor. Thank you so much. And I've really enjoyed our conversation. (laughs) Good. All right. uh, Me too. And uh, thanks for being on and everybody. Thank you so much for listening. That's it. Bye.